welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story. Together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Beth Marlis. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everybody, to episode 39 of High Action. I'm Will Brom, and I wanted to ask John and Perry today about their experiences teaching and being an administrator and basically the differences that they've experienced teaching privately versus teaching in institutions. And I think I'm going to start with John. What do you have to say? Well, yeah, big topic. And, you know, Beth Marlis today, our, our guest, is someone who, like, I feel like is really a leader in guitar education, contemporary guitar education. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's so cool that as teachers, we're getting more opportunities to teach in the classroom and individually, um, more like contemporary guitar styles. And I guess jazz guitar fits under that umbrella a little bit. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been teaching now for gosh, 20 years and, um, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how it's evolved and, you know, in terms of the classroom, um, just the kinds of students that are wanting to come and learn guitar and the level, how high the level continues to go. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's great. I, I love teaching. I'm very lucky to get to do some teaching, especially this year. And if anything, 2020 showed me kind of what my teaching, um, values are and the things that I really want to teach. Cause it was pretty much all I was doing most of the year was just mm -hmm. teaching. So yeah. Do you approach teaching differently inside an institution like at Pierce college versus if you just have a private student that calls you and goes, Hey, I'd like an hour lesson. Oh yeah. A lot of times because the community college has a certain rubric that we have to teach and that that's, that's being taught by the entire applied music program. So everyone in private lessons is getting the similar kind of thing. And that's leading towards a jury or a recital. Plus you're gearing up students to maybe go from community college to say a USC or a new school or Miami. So you're kind of in that intermediate point between high school and college for some students, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. And, and so it is definitely to, different. If I'm teaching somebody privately, a lot of times it's just because they met me in the community and they're like, Hey, I'd love to learn some jazz guitar from you. Um, which I know all three of us, I think feel this way. It's, we feel pretty lucky that when, when you get yourself a little established in your scene, people start asking you for lessons that are more relevant to what you're doing, which is a real honor. And it's really fun. I mean, I love teaching people how to approach jazz standards and transcribe and how to learn the language. So yeah, it's, it's a different dynamic for sure. When you're at a college versus just in your own um, private lesson studio, for sure. Mm -hmm. And Perry, you're teaching guitar at the Brooklyn music factory, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful gig. Um, I actually started it in September, and it's been all online, so it presents kind of a different level of teaching than we've experienced when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody or in a group setting. But yeah, just to kind of echo what John was saying, you know, teaching uh, is a wonderful thing to be able to do as a guitar player, especially, you know, earn your living, right? That's a big part of the reason that people have to do this stuff. And 
I think it's just important for the overall community because as we've experienced on High Action, you know, the guitar um, brings together so many people from all over the globe and, you know, whether it's in a small community or throughout an entire country. And if you don't have people that are like getting young aspiring students into it or getting adult students back into this passion they had, um, if you don't have people kind of connecting and building the community out in that way, ultimately it suffers because all these people, guess what? They're all going to be fans of guitar, you know, and they're all going to love the instrument as much as we do. So I just try to kind of pass on that, um, that good feeling and good vibes to all my students, you know, kind of at whatever level. Yeah. And you were talking with Beth Marlis, again, our featured guest today on High Action about setting the the artistic self-centered ego aside and really giving back to the community and giving knowledge to the next generation to keep this whole train rolling. And I think that was a really great point. She's great at that. You know, she's been part of the guitar community in LA for decades, you know, having studied with some of the same people that we've all studied with, you know, and she serves a really important role in that community being uh, vice president and senior faculty at Musicians Institute. So... So before we get on to Beth Marlis, um, wonderful guitarist, amazing interviewee, she's the vice president of Musicians Institute for the past 10 years, 11 years actually, and uh, we had a really great interview with her, but before we send you in there to listen, I want to remind you to subscribe on Patreon and check out all the music that we're posting up there um, and all kinds of other fun discussions. We're, we've been talking a lot about standards lately. So subscribe on Patreon, check us out on YouTube, check us out on Instagram, and we hope you enjoy episode 39 with Beth Marlis. Right, we've got Beth Marlis with us today, a Los Angeles native. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm the only, maybe the only one. There might be one or two other ones, but but yeah, I'm from here, from LA. So Beth, I kind of wanted to just start at the beginning at when you got a guitar and what, what you know, sparked the drive of you making guitar your full-time thing. Um, well, I'll try to do it without revealing my true age, which is going to be impossible. Um, but as a, as a kid of the sixties, the Beatles, definitely, mm -hmm. that was just it. I mean, you couldn't be any cooler and everybody wanted to be one of the Beatles. Um, so that inspired me. I actually started at five years old with a violin first. It just was not hip enough. I begged my parents, you got to get me a guitar. They got me a guitar cause I just bothered them so relentlessly. And then um, I got lessons too, and they were terrible. I mean, it could have been over right then and there at, at about age 10 um, because I hated it and I hated what I had to learn. It was like America the Beautiful was the first song I ever learned to play. Um, and because Jimi Hendrix was also walking the face of the earth um, and inspiring all of us, I took my very first guitar and I smashed it against the side of the house. I heard this story. <laughs> I was I was going to ask about yeah. it. <laughs> so I was like, I am too cool for America. The beautiful do not make me learn this. Um, somehow or other, I, I must have really been an annoying child because I got another guitar later. 
I think it was given to me by a cousin. So I was off to the races. Then it was a Hagstrom mm -hmm. electric guitar mm -hmm. with all kinds of, you know, mother of toilet seat on it and extra knobs and buttons. And I couldn't, couldn't have been happier. So that was the beginning of, of all of it for me. And I don't, I don't think I've, I've ever stopped since then. So that's, that's how it all happened. And your earliest time, you know, before we get into the discussion about MI and, you know, your, your wonderful involvement there, you first went to UC Santa Cruz, right? It's true. Um, I, having grown up in LA, um, wanted to get out just like any Angelino. It's like, God, let me out of here <laughs> when, when you're old enough. So, um, I really liked Santa Cruz and the school had a great reputation. So I went up there not really knowing what the heck I wanted to do. It was actually, uh, another one of those moments of truth because at that age, first year of college, I actually wanted to go to GIT. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go. It was the first year of GIT. And again, I don't know why my parents seemed to be important, but they were and should have been. And I asked them, you know, well, can I just stay in L.A. and go to this this little tiny thing? But it looks really cool. And I saw the ads in Guitar Player and I thought, I want to go there. And they're like, no, <laughs> you're going to go to college. So I'm glad. I, I'm glad I waited. Uh, and I went up to UC Santa Cruz and it was pretty eclectic with a capital E. Um, so <laughs> there were no grades. Um, you did what you wanted. So my, my degree in music, if you want to even call it that, <clears throat> was a, a combination of uh, like gamelan. I studied electronic music, j Latin jazz, uh, it was all over the place. And my final project was an, was an album. I mean, it was just like, make your own thing. You don't get a grade, do what you want. So it was, uh, it was cool. Yeah. I, I, I did do that. I have no idea what it's like up there now. I'm sure it's very, uh, normal, but back then in the seventies, it was really creative. I, I, um, heard you mentioned that, was it at UC Santa Cruz that you got to perform with John Cage? Was that where that was? Oh yeah, man, you are a very good uh, detective. Yes, I did. Um, in, in my electronic music studies, which really was kind of like Moog synthesizer and, um, analog tape. That's so, so we cool. were, it was cool. Yeah, man, we were slicing away, uh, editing away with the uh, tape and, um, the whole like tabletop was a ginormous synthesizer with a billion patch cables. And that was sort of like what I studied wow. composition on that. So talk about eclectic, like I said. And John Cage um, came to the school, and in and maybe he was there just for a week, but you know it was incredible. And he enlisted the electronic music students to perform um, radio music. So you know, if you know anything about that one, it was just a series. I, I don't remember the number. Maybe it was a dozen radios set up on stage in the in the performance hall, and then we all randomly. I shouldn't say that mindfully, <laughs> um, dialed in <laughs> yeah, ran, kind of randomly, uh, radio, uh, you know, it was all very much of the moment. Um, and we felt very important <laughs> doing it as college kids. Um, but also he, he, uh, had someone perform four minutes and 33 seconds as well, which is the infamous piece where the performer sits down in front of the grand piano, closes the cover and, sits for four minutes and 33 seconds and the audience of course is to listen to all of the ambient sound and it was it actually was really i'm not gonna you know fake you out here i thought it was really profound sure um, to be experiencing yeah. that in person you know 
yeah, no, it was it was great. So uh, there were there were things about UC Santa Cruz in its um, unique in its unique way that you couldn't have had anywhere else. So I'm really glad I went to school there, and um, you know GIT, like I said, I, I waited to circle back around to it much later in life. So yeah, I, I did that program, and it was cool. There were some great musicians there too. Do you feel that a program? It sounds like something like UC Santa Cruz compared to you know, the guitar department at USC are quite different in their structure, right? How, however much, however little. Do you think there's benefits to both or do you think that more structure is simply more beneficial or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I've had the ability to triangulate USC and use, um, UC Santa Cruz and also GIT, these kind of three different worlds mm-hmm. and, you know, appreciate Viva La Difference, you know, for all of them. I think Certain students really thrive, you know, having a very structured uh, situation and other students, of course, rebel against it. And, you know, it's all over the place. I mean, a lot of times you probably have seen yourselves that students come to these institutions to figure out that actually they don't want to play guitar mm-hmm. or they're not cut out. For, you know, they, they, they go to sort of put their feet in the water, just like, you know, I could say to, to Perry, like moving to New, to New York or whatever. It's like the great litmus test. And so I, I think um, USC, what was great about it and still is, is it's really small. It's really intimate. It, it's like there's nowhere to hide at all, mm-hmm. which is great. Some people probably get terrified by that and, and you know, can't hang with it. Um, GIT, obviously much, much, much larger. But, you know, in both ways, GIT and USC, it's community. GIT, it's a really diverse community, and you've got lots of people to play with and lots of, of um, you know, stuff going on. But at USC, it was kind of like a family, mm-hmm. which I really, really like. So, again, really different. And, and UC Santa Cruz was, I don't know, it was the 70s. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> you, had to be, you had to be there. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to, it's Akeda, uh, the town of Akeda um, University. I'm, I'm blanking on the on the University of California that's up there, but my trio did a clinic up there once. It's just such an interesting vibe. It's just, you know, I remember we were at a grocery store and there was a gentleman performing solo guitar and he had a coat of arms on his music stand. What? <laughs> I, I loved it. What? It's just what is that small about? town charm, you know. <clears throat> coat of arms? Like he was a LARPer? Like he had like a shield with like an a yeah. eagle and a snake in its mouth. That's on called it. LARPing, but we digress. Uh, yeah, I, think there's some, I think there's something in that for you, you guys. You know, high yeah. action coat of arms. Yeah. You yeah. could really like totally. run with that. You know, I think it's, so. It's I, yeah, badge was, of honor. Was he also selling little bear cubs too, Will? And oh stuff my like gosh. That? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, liquor. okay. I'm, I'm digressing. So, so after UC Santa Cruz, <clears throat> you did a little bit of touring with a band before you went to GIT, right? Yeah, that is that is true. Um, I, at the time, uh, before, you know, I would, it's hard to explain, but, you know, before I really knew I wanted to be a musician and, and fully do it, um, I was uh, a, a mail carrier. I worked for the Postal Service and was an Aikido teacher. I taught martial arts. Um, and so those things took up a lot of my time, but I started to really feel the pull of wanting to uh, be more of a musician, you know, and pursue that. So the year before I went to GIT, I toured with a new acoustic music mm. group, which is like uh, David Grisman and Bella Fleck, 
and and so bluegrass and jazz and we played festivals um across the united states uh, robin flower band was the name of the band mm-hmm. a really really talented composer from oakland like mm-hmm. really cool like no one in the world knows who that is now but um it was a great experience because the the gigs were huge so yeah. to go from not really doing a lot to suddenly playing for thousands on the festival circuit was fantastic and uh yeah it was great music and i was playing a martin d18 so in fact you know, I, I didn't even have, I don't think I even owned an electric guitar at that point in time at all. And I came to GIT and, uh, uh, I think got a, I think I got a George Benson GB 10, something like that. Uh, yeah. Which I, yeah, I know it was a cool guitar. I think I'd actually had a 175 that I sold. I lied. I did have an electric guitar, but you know, I've had many 175s, Gibson 175s that I've had and sold and had and sold and like cool mm-hmm. changes. You know, we could have a whole nother podcast about all the mm-hmm. great guitars we've all evolved through. But anyway, yeah, I did tour that just made it clear to me. I got to get this, this thing about the guitar more, you know, in it, under my fingers and really understand. I, I was playing to huge audiences and I felt kind of like a fraud, like, you know, I don't even know all the notes on the fretboard. And there's like, you know, 10,000 people in the audience. I just felt like I got to fix this. This is bad. So <laughs> finally, I was able to come back to L.A. and go to GIT in 1985. Mm-hmm. So technically, really, I was a professional musician. I wasn't sure they were even going to let me in because the reputation, it was like so intense studio musician, heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, but luckily, they did. And I the proverbial GIT student who never grew up, you know, I've never left ever since I got there. They couldn't get me, you know, to go. So I've been there ever since. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by Marchione Guitars. Stephen Marchione is a luthier based in Houston, Texas. He's been building guitars since 1990. His style is extremely unique. He builds uh, classicals, arch tops, steel strings, solid bodies, and even violins. He's studied uh, makers like Jimmy DeQuisto and John D'Angelico, and his style is both a combination of modern uh, technology and design with old school tradition in terms of how arch top guitars are built. My 16-inch arch top I purchased in 2017 is incredible. I love playing that guitar. Um, and so if you'd like to hear more recordings of the 16-inch arch top or learn more about Marchione guitars, visit marchione.com. So coming to GIT in the mid-80s, you know, we, we've talked with Ron Eshday, we've talked with Joe Diorio, Tim Lurch. Uh, a number of people that were around that scene. And if you can just tell us a little bit about, you know, some memorable experiences of interacting with any of those guys. Sure. I mean, it's really, you know, amazing as more times gone by the, the absolute legends that I've been able to be around. And I, I think, you know, you guys as well, of course, you, you become more humbled, you know, to the, uh, the world that we get to travel in, we're really lucky. And so at GIT, you know, there were just icons constantly. <laughs> I felt very, very, very humbled and, 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 you know, proud to be insulted by the best of them, like Joe Pass. Yeah, you <laughs> mentioned this. Me. I'm curious what, what went on with Joe Pass, because I've heard you mention this story before. 
Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to dwell heavily on it, um, but actually, uh, back when I was playing that Martin D18 and I was about 16, uh, before I went off to college, my brother was in the entertainment industry. He was pretty well connected. He thought for my 16th birthday, I'll get, I'll get my sister, um, a guitar lesson with Joe Pass, um, a private list. So, so picture, like yeah. lay that scenario out. How absurd. Like the 16-year-old girl with a Martin goes over to Joe Pass's house and uh, for a private lesson. Uh, he couldn't have rolled his eyes any harder. Uh, Could you? I felt I, like looking back at it, it's hysterical now. But uh, he meant yeah, well. I, I think your brother meant well. Yeah. But yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I I just felt like you know the biggest fool. Um, like I don't even know what he was talking about. You know, like what's a chord melody? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> It was bad. So I didn't cross paths with him again for a long time, like 15 or more years. And then um, at GIT, when I was a student, he was there with John Paisano um, every couple weeks or so doing open counseling, like office hours. So everybody in the school, all the students were terrified. Only the most hardcore jazzers would even go in the room because we were all freaked out. But I got up my my guts and and uh, I went in his room and I I don't know if he remembered me but I have a feeling he remembered me as that like you know ridiculous sixteen year old girl, so I sat to play some kind of jazz blues with him um, and he he just he had a habit of just saying you know whatever came into his mind he would never filter it he was really rough edged and you know that would be a, again like a badge of honor if he kicked your ass um, so yeah he just he, we were playing and he goes like. Okay, stop. Why did you play that B flat right there? Stop everything. I'm like, you have to explain it. I'm like, what? You know, just Joe, horrified. Man. Joe is like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> why did it? Why? But, but again, it might have been a wrong note. And, and I think somewhere else in the world on, you know, some other interview, I might have said, you know, he did me a favor because in the real world on a gig, I would have been fired for playing that stupid B flat, whatever. It was. So I had to answer, be answerable for everything. It was a real, you know, slap in the face. I was a student, but you know, it was like, okay, that's the real world. Um, so yeah, insulted by the best. Um, and, uh, but you know, most everybody else has just been amazing. You mentioned Joe DiOrio before I really connected with him, um, from the very beginning on so many levels. And, and once I, graduated GIT and became an instructor there, I would stay after school with him um, mm -hmm. often and hang out in his room long after classes and play together. And I have these great memories of him bringing art books, you know, and like flipping over open randomly books of paintings or Picasso. It's like, okay, we're going to play this one today. Just like we're playing this painting today. I mean, it was just fantastic and, you know, amazing to be with him. Um, in fact, I talked to Joe maybe about six months ago, you know, still stay in touch. And, and, and his wife answered the phone and, and I could hear in the background, some harmonica. I was like, Whoa, is that Joe? Cause it was bebop harmonica. Joe was teaching himself how to play bebop harmonica, which was amazing. It's like his creativity knows no bounds. You know, he was still painting. Mm -hmm. He's kind of able to, to play, not up to the level where he was after his health issues, but he just said, yeah, I'm going to learn. You know, I, I played some gigs with Toots Tielmans. I'm going to learn harmonica now. And he played great. He was playing the incredible bird licks. 
in the background in his, in his, in his house. So, um, he really is very, you know, near and dear and important to me. We used to, when I was at USC as a student getting my master's, Joe was there and we'd have lunch all the time Mm -hmm. and just joke. I mean, it was just like the guy's a crackpot, right? He's, he's like (laughs) really funny. So, um, I just loved hanging. He was, you know, kind of like my dad, my musical dad in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't play anything like Joe, um, but I know some of it's in there. You know, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, yeah. Yeah. John and Perry studied with Joe at USC. Um, I studied with Ron Eshte at Cal State Long Beach. So we always like hearing, you know, hearing funny stories of these guys just commiserating around like this proverbial like hallways of GIT in the 80s, you know. It, it was a trip, yeah, to have Ron Eshte there, Pat Martino coming around, uh, you know, um, it, it was an amazing time. Um, Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, you know, all these mm-hmm. different layers of great players. And so that's the thing I think I alluded to before about just feeling very humbled. You know, I keep a pretty low profile in the world just because, you know, I've been around so many iconic players that, um, you know, just really uh, feel lucky and, and, um, very humble about it, you know, as far as my process, which is, you know, many decades long now, as far as playing the guitar and, and, um, you know, when I got to be the head of GIT, it really was for me meaningful to be able to bring some people back in as teachers. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I don't mean to kind of surge surge ahead. I was going to ask after, so you graduated in 86 and then by sometime in 87, you were teaching there. It's, it's true. It's all true. Um, I, I taught a lot, you know, I mentioned before I, I was a martial arts teacher and I think it, it, I learned how to teach through teaching martial arts. Mm. That was a great, uh, capacity building experience for me. So, um, I felt really confident that I could teach there and, uh, you know, somehow convinced them to hire me. Um, there were, there was one other woman on the staff, Jennifer Batten mm. was there. Um, maybe that, that had some factor. I, I imagine not. Um, it wasn't just that I, I knew I would be a great teacher, but I think that it was, you know, some acknowledgement that I'd learned something as a student and I could give back. So I was really thrilled to be able to start as an instructor. Um, and then over the years, um, I worked a lot. I mean, I think I was teaching 30 hours a week or something. It was, you know, I mean, the the calculus is staggering over the time that I've taught. I mean, it's several, several thousands of students. I don't even really know. But, um, it, you know, in classrooms, in one-on-one situations, in, you know, written curriculum, um, what a great gift. I, I just, you know, I'm so glad they hired me um, and that that, that happened. Um, I am... I, um, did that for probably um, 13 or so years before I was asked to be chair of the department. So uh, that that was uh, an amazing ride, and I continued to teach, and I still do even now, a couple hours a week, just do some teaching. But um, in the year 2000, I took over as department chair, um, and I really felt like I was entrusted with a treasure, like this national treasure, like this I, again, iconic, not to abuse the word, but this, uh, 
uh, amazing place that had the Raneshtes and the Joe Passes and my heroes walking the halls. And it's like, okay, here's the baby. Don't drop it. You know, they handed it off to me. So I never lost the perspective of being a student because that's, you know, what this is all for. So having been a student, um, always seeing it through their eyes and sort of this feeling of being inspired every single day and being pushed as hard as possible every single day was really my marching orders um, and to make it fun, you know, and exciting. So there were a few people over the years I brought brought in um, to come and do clinics. I mean, a couple hundred actually uh, to do special concerts and things, but a few that stood out to me that I felt very proud of because of my orientation towards jazz was to be able to um, get Ted Green to come out of his apartment <laughs> and, and uh, do uh, open counseling, do an office hours uh, situation where he, I mean, I, it worked, uh, it was years. I asked him very nicely uh, for years to do this. And um, I actually had taken a lesson from Ted one time, one lesson, one lesson, um, he was, you know, there's so many great stories about him and his genius, but I knew after one lesson that he gave me six months worth of stuff to work on, I could never go back. I just felt like I could never be a good enough student. And, um, and so I, I never went back. Years later, he saw me at USC, of all places. He ran into me. He scolded me. So talk about being scolded by the best. I got it from Joe Pass. I got it from Ted Green. It's like, why? He said, why didn't you come back? you have to come back to me. And I just really, you know, I felt bad. I didn't come back, but I did invite him to come to GIT and teach and uh, really, really, you know, proud to have had him come and inspire the students at the school. And, and the, the other person that rates right up there is Jimmy Weibel, um, to be able to hire him to come back and teach towards the end of his life was one of, I think maybe the, I'm the most proud of bringing him in and and helping him to create the art of two-line improvisation um, structure for his class. I didn't create any of the content, obviously, um, but he was so incredible and so he loved it so profoundly um, and would invite all the students to come over to his house, you know, after class, it's like, give me everybody, give me your phone numbers and, you know, come on over after school and we'll just play. And I mean, it was, man, you know, well, we all know, well, most of us, many of us know about Jimmy and, and not only his incredible genius, but just as a human being, you know, what a, what a role model. So uh, very, very proud to have brought those two uh, around the school. Um, really special. Yeah, we've, we've discussed Jimmy on other episodes. And, you know, again, to all the listeners, definitely check out Jimmy Weibel's Etude books and his playing. It's, it's just a totally different, incredibly musical way of looking at the guitar. I kind of wanted to ask your opinion, you know, especially being part of GIT slash MI basically since the mid 80s. And, you know, now you're the vice president and you've, you've gone through a, a lot of different tiers of, of administration there. How have you seen the educational program in general, whether it's at that school or just in general, how has it evolved in your eyes? Uh, boy, I mean, it's really taken... Um a pretty radical turn since COVID. So I'm not sure if that's even part of your question. Yeah, we could get to that, but more so like teaching curriculum or, or the way that students and teachers might interact in the eighties, nineties into the two thousands, you know, were there any big evolutionary changes for better or worse that you felt like you were seeing maybe with like the, with cell phones come into equation that kind of changes 
the whole dynamic, you know. Cell phone changed everything, man. It was like, put down your phone. Stop noodling on the guitar in class. Put your phone down. Stop staring at it. Now, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the geometry of the guitar hasn't changed. You know, that's the same. The, the um, powers of melody and harmony and um, rhythm. But as far as the delivery methods are concerned, or you know what, maybe it's the receiving that has changed. The students have changed. They've changed because, obviously, because of technology and being able to access much more information prior to, to getting to school, I think in certain respects makes for a better student. You know, they just have more access. So, um, you know, not necessarily, it's not like it's a, a solution to um, putting in the work because you still have to put in the work. You know, you can have all the the best stuff on a silver platter doesn't take you there unless you, you grab it. Um, I think we've incorporated over the years. I mean, it's hilarious if you ever find any images of, of old GIT, uh, so-called technology, it's Guitar Institute of Technology. What was the technology back then anyway? <laughs> it was a tape recorder and an egg timer, an egg timer. I loved that technology. It was, it came out of Howard Roberts and, you know, another genius, but the idea of the timeframes, I don't know if Ron Eshtay's talked about that, but that the task at hand fills the uh, time allotted to it so that if you have to practice, um, you know, minor seven flat five arpeggios in five positions in every key or some random whatever thing, uh, if you give yourself 10 minutes to do it, you know, uh, over a period of time, squeeze it down so that you accomplish the same amount of work in a shorter period of time. That's sort of the mentality of being a session musician and where Howard and Tommy Tedesco came from is, is that tech so-called technology of being able to get things off the page quickly, get it into your playing quickly. So that was the technology of GIT um, visualization using all these tools. Um, the literal technological changes of adding computer capacities, you know, recording, um, obviously, you know, I think we've all lived through that and how it's, it's, it's impacted us. Has it changed the way we teach? Sure. Because we've changed our curriculum to be digitized, to be, you know, cross platforms and be able to have real time. If you're sight reading an example, you know, get graded. Oh, that's the wrong note. You know, that you're, you're able to get feedback more quickly. Um, I've been beta testing lately, some technology to be able to, um, without saying the name of the company, there's several doing this, to be able to have real-time non-latency um, um, uh, online performance abilities so that, you know, you can, you can do that. And I think that'll continue to change the way that we teach, too, as far as a hybrid is concerned, that you don't have to rehearse, you know, in the same city. It really is high-quality you know, you, you can do these things. So I, it's, it's a moving target and it's not going to stop moving. And the, uh, the beauty of, of, of GIT and Musicians Institute, I think really is that it's, it's malleable and we've been flexible and we've evolved. We started as just a guitar school with those tape recorders, you know, and super analog. And it's really different. I mean, there's so many programs and so much going on and, and I can't answer to how it is at USC I liked the feeling when I was a student there, that was 1995, um, of it being kind of like it didn't have a lot of extra bells and whistles. It was just the guitar in a way. I know that's not quite a fair characterization, but um, 
it was very different. Is that, does it still seem like that to you? I don't, I don't know when the last time I've set foot over there a bunch and I was Nick Stubis had me back this past fall um, as a little bit of a guest. And yeah, there's still the family camaraderie vibe amongst the guitarists. Although now studio jazz guitar is just a graduate degree there. The undergraduates are either in jazz studies or the popular music program. So it's a little different than when Perry and I went there, undergraduate, undergrad students had the option of doing studio jazz guitar only. There wasn't jazz studies for guitar. So we were all a part of that camaraderie. There were about, I don't know, 35, 40, maybe between the grad students, DMA, masters, and bachelors. And as you know, Joe Jewell was one of the first guys to get that DMA just as Perry and I entered school was when that was going down. Yeah. Got it. Got it. I mean, I, I, there's something great about it, you know, just like... The clubhouse, you know, there's like 30 or 40 of you. And, and I, I mean, also when I was there, um, I got to study with Larry Koontz, who I is one of my favorite guitar players in the world, a, a greatest teacher too. And so, you know, it, it, it was a really great environment. I mean, again, so the, going, harking back to Will's question before about different learning environments, you know, the value of a USC or UC Santa Cruz or a GIT, each one really has some strong points that they all, they all work, you know, and I think when you're shopping as a student for where you would resonate best, it's really good if, I mean, now that COVID, hopefully the light is at the end of the tunnel, that eventually, you know, you can really kind of go there and see what it feels like. Literally the vibe, I think you were talking about up in Arcata or wherever it was, Will, mm -hmm. like the vibe of the town. I think that all that stuff matters. It really can impinge upon does. your your ability to, to grow as a player if it just doesn't feel quite right. So I thought about going to Berkeley too when I was younger, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know, it's just whatever it didn't come to pass but i wish i could have just gone if i had like infinite funding and like gone around to all the different schools it's like well how's this one feel and you know but they really are every single one of them is really different it's interesting even usc and git had some of the same teachers going back and forth you know cross-pollinating but the whole environment you know really really different well, we've been talking about you, but we haven't gotten to play any of your music yet. Is it okay if I spin a song really quick? Um, you could spin it, yeah, uh, really quick or regular speed. Okay. <laughs>
swinging, Beth. And again, we're stoked to have you. And uh, I know Perry and I have some questions too for you. And just thank you for your time. I was just texting Larry Kuntz and he wanted me to send you a big virtual hug, he says, in Larry <laughs> Kuntz's words. And if that isn't a Larry Kuntz statement, I don't know what is, right? No, that's um, the one. That's yeah, that's great. Say. Give Beth Marlis a virtual hug for me. So Larry Kuntz oh. on high action via Zoom to you, Beth. How about that? Oh, that's great. Uh, Thanks. Crazy Thanks times. For- yeah. yeah. Well, but again, so great to see you again. And, you know, we, we briefly met a long time ago at the 2003 or four NAM show up in the Fender booth when Bob Benedetto was having his instruments made by Fender at the time. And you were there kind of hanging with Howard Paul. And I got to meet you and talk to you because I grew up in Oregon. And when I was researching college, I looked at USC and then I learned about what GIT was. And at the time I thought that was still around. I was like, oh, but that's Musicians Institute. And then I learned about who you were. So I it was delight, I was delighted to meet you. And you know, you've done so much for the community for education. I mean, you run into a lot of people who've worked with you and who've studied with you over at MI. Um, and I had some questions, you know, about your teaching a little bit. What's what's something that you want your students to take away from when they get to work with you uh, right away? Like it, whether it's at MI or the most advanced kind of student that comes to you, the most beginning kind of student. What's like one of the first things you want them to take away from from a lesson? Wow. You mean the one size fits all, no matter who you are, no matter how far along you are, like what you, yeah. yeah. I mean, cause we all know there's just one answer, right? <laughs> yeah. Like Joe DiOrio says it's one big song. So there's only one answer for all people. Um, you know, I don't want to be ridiculous and just say like a sense of joy or something like that. But, um, you know, there is, a, there is something in that kind of answer of like the happiness of being able to create and, um, it's a long road, right? All the sacred uh, geometry, like I was saying before, of, of the fretboard and, and, the, and music. And, you know, it's so deep and so much. So um, I think one thing I've encountered with a lot of students, because I'm connected to institutions, is there there's a very heavy sort of fear or stress level of um i got to learn these shapes i got to learn these tunes i got to learn this method i've got to you know all this baggage in a way which is important stuff um to the point where even with really complex music um you kind of stop trusting your own ear or your own inner tape recorder if you will so that you know you've been listening to music since you were you know a tiny tiny you know, child mm-hmm. and that you've been imbibing it, so to speak, uh, forever. And that, 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 um, even though it's like when you were a teenager, maybe you were learning by ear, you know, this thing of, uh, just ripping stuff, you know, and we all still do it and we rely on our ears. But I think that, that in institutions, students forget that they can trust their own instinct. And so I do get students to reconnect by singing, um, singing lines, singing lines first, and then copying them on your instrument, singing them simultaneously, hopefully, eventually, if you can kind of line those things up. That never lies. I mean, even, I'm a horrible singer, so I would love to embarrass myself and, like, sing first. And, um, you know, I I think that that's a very, very relevant thing, in addition to bucket loads of important technical studies and, you know, studying great players and lines and harmony, you know, everything. That's the one thing that's the, that, that comes to mind, John, is, is that, that that's like one bicep and, you know, you go to the gym and then the other side of it is all that other work. 
but they, when they work together, you know how that feels, right? Cause you guys are, you're a great player. You're all great players. And you know, when then the instrument disappears and it really is that internal thing. So I just encourage them from the beginning, trust that thing. Cause it's never wrong. Really? Yeah. And it's funny when you tell a student like, well, why don't you try to sing what you're playing? Oh, I don't sing. And I'm like, well, actually vocalize it or just even the rhythms or something. Let's do some kind of other way of externalizing the lines so that you can show me that you're playing what you're hearing and not hearing what you're playing in a way, you know? Um, so yeah, again, that's excellent. It's, it's an interesting question. I've asked it to some of our guests on high action and some people have a very definitive answer and other people have a more general answer. And that that's, that's beautiful. I love how you put that. And, um, you know, also just to, sh I have a million questions, but I got to kind of shift gears just for time's sake, um, and take a little bit of a, uh, just a quick little gear angle for you, because seeing a lot of pictures of you playing those, the smaller Benedetto guitars, like the Bambino that you mentioned, a lot of our listeners, you know, don't get a chance to play them because they're kind of hard to get a hold of unless you, um, run into Howard or no players that have them. Cause they're not available really in shops. Um, are you drawn to like the smaller arch tops? Um, because you know, they're, they're comfortable and they maybe kind of remind you like, that's a pretty slick Sir Telecaster I see in your background right there too. Um, is that kind of something that draws you to that style of arch top versus like a big 175? I'm just really curious kind of your choice for your, your arch top. Cause it, it is a really cool guitar and they're not widely available, um, but they seem pretty slick, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it's one of those um, conundrums. Like if you really want to get to a more handmade boutique kind of guitar, it's kind of difficult to get your hands on them sometimes. Like I know, um, Will, since I told you I, I stock all three of you <laughs> online, but Will has this beautiful guitar. It's pronounced Marchione, right? Yeah, Marchione. Yeah. I have one. John has a, a 16. Yeah, and I, have right? a, oh. I have a 175 style he built for me. Yeah. But I have that in, you know, that sort of um, thing in reverse. Like, I'd love to play one because I know a lot of great players play them. And how would that evolve my experience of what the right guitar is? Because we know we've all owned so many of them. I do, I do gravitate to the smaller ones really um, primarily because I'm not so ginormous. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm five foot six. So, um, I think there's that that experience of throwing your arm over a, a pretty, you know, full-bodied guitar that just stopped being comfortable for me. I love the tone, and and I sometimes, you know, imagine getting a um, a bigger guitar um, again. But yeah, I've got a couple of these Bambinos um, uh, over my other shoulder. You can't quite see. There's a Gibson 336 um, custom carved top, like a smaller than a 335 body. Um, all of my, my strats and tellies are all chambered. So, uh, you know, all completely different variations of small body hollow guitars is, is the sweet spot for me. Yeah. Um, it's comfortable. So I really don't want to have to fight the instrument or get tendonitis or carpal tunnel or whatever either. Feel, I yeah. want it to feel good. Yeah. yeah. And they, that's an awesome company that since those days when they were, well, Bob, of course, amazing guitar maker, and then went to work with for Fender a little bit, but now they're doing so many cool stuff. And Howard, those guys are, um, big supporters of the jazz guitar community, which is great. You know, it's nice to have companies like Peter Henriksen, these guys that sort of draw us all together, you know, like I know you use Henriksen's, we all have Henriksen's, we love Peter and all of that. So it's, it's super cool to just 
talk a little gear with you. I'd, I'd love to pass it back over to actually to Perry now. And um, again, hope to run into you around LA soon as things get more open. And we so appreciate you taking the time, Beth, today. Oh, it's great to be here. It's a pleasure. And I'll just put in a quick plug about Benedetto. What a great company. Love their guitars. They do treat their players and educators like family. It's fantastic. Same with Henriksen. So yeah, you know, plug for both of those companies. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hi, Beth. It's Perry over here. Uh, we're out in Brooklyn. It's so great to see you and meet you virtually. I don't think I ever had the pleasure of meeting you when I lived in Los Angeles, sadly, but your uh, reputation exceeds you. As a student of No Diorios, I also heard about you as well. And uh, we were just wait, 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 wait. It exceeds me or precedes, precedes. me? We got to clarify. Precedes. If it exceeds me, I mean, I'll take that. If I have a bigger reputation than I know about, you know, today is a good day. No, I'm sorry. I'm just I guess, I guess it could be both technically, but uh, no. it could be. Um, okay. Also studying with Joe DiOrio, I remember hearing your name, and you were always well-respected in the Los Angeles guitar community. We were just talking about that before you came on, just you know, reminiscing about our old days at SC and hearing your name, Pat Kelly, too, and DiOrio. And um, you know, as I listen to you here on this podcast today, uh, it's clear to me that you have such a wonderful perspective about, you know, um, your career, and I think just having a wonderful attitude has helped you be really successful in your career because it's a very changing landscape, as you'd probably agree. Um, the you know uh, years that you've spent in this career, you've had to evolve, right? Through as technologies uh, changed, you've had to kind of change your approach. Everything from writing a lot of books to being the, involved in education, and I'm just kind of curious to ask i think our listeners might be interested you know where do you continue to find the drive to evolve in a changing industry and not get you know cynical or bitter or dark in ways that so many musicians fall victim to that only hurts their career you've avoided that it seems oh um you know i think it's it's um i like being an agent of change in a way sort of a provocateur. I like being able to affect uh, bigger forces than myself um, with the, the kind of the feeling of creating opportunities for other people in a way, which I know is a crazy way to capsulize play, what playing guitar is and does, but that sort of, you know, you're touching people's lives. You're, you know, you're creating something and you're, you're making something happen. And I feel that that's the same thing, whether I'm, with my instrument, I'm performing, whether I'm teaching, whether I'm running a program, um, whether I'm, you know, involved in the community because I've done a lot of community engagement, civic engagement. To me, it really is all super interconnected and it's diverse, but these paths all kind of meet up to me. So I really kind of put front and center the ability to, um, you know, just do something that will make a difference. And I know that sounds very vague, um, but I think we all have our, our dark days or whatever, you know, where it's like, oh, you know, face palm and I, you know, I can't do this again or, you know, I got to quit or walk away. But I, I think that to be a successful musician, obviously you have to have the discipline and the drive. Um, and harking back to what I said before, sort of half-heartedly, the sort of the joy of it, mm-hmm. like you just love it. You know, you love it. And, and I, 
really, I can't, you know, you've heard this, I'm sure a hundred times now during the pandemic, how much people are enjoying the ability to, to play like all the hours I spent on the freeway, I can now devote to playing and practicing and shedding and, you know, studying what I want to study. And to me, I couldn't be happier. And it, and I, I feel like it all just, uh, goes into the bank, you know, whether it's, the time I spent on the guitar or out in the community or, or whatever it is. I don't know. I, I, I'm just happy to have opportunities to um, be out in the world and, and do something, you know, that whatever that something is, I, as I think I say on my website, I just say yes. And then I figure it out. It's right. really worked for me. You know, that works. It's really simple. Yeah. yeah. I like that. You know, it's that idea that you said about trying to like do something that's going to make a difference. It's almost like not totally self-serving. It's not about you or your ego all the time. It's about you know, serving the community, whether you're executive director at MI or on these nonprofits that you've been a part of. So I think it's that feeling of giving back and, and, um, infusing something positive into the guitar community that I think creates a nice perspective. Too many musicians, I think, are a little wrapped up in their own world, you know, and I think that can contribute to some of the cynicism with the ups yeah. and downs of the career. Competitiveness, too. I mean, you know, you see it when you're online and you just see people self-destructing or yeah. just going down these roads where it's like, you know, you, you've gone way far off, you know, what it is that you set out to do. And it's so much distraction. And I think if anything with the pandemic, you know, we don't have, at least for a year, you know, we didn't have radical FOMO, like fear of missing out, you know, or competitiveness for gigs or, you know, it just kind of stripped a lot of stuff away um, and exposed a lot. You know, in some ways that was nice, you know, really, really, really nice. You know, it just gives you a chance to really um, reevaluate, you know, why are you doing this? And, and I think again, back to Jimmy Weibel. You know, his, his absolute joyousness at being able to teach students, Mm -hmm. you know, was like, I I will never forget, you know, how much he loved just here. Let me just show you the way that I do this little arpeggiated movement. I mean, he couldn't be happier and it's kind of appreciation for the fact that we're all really gift. You know, we have this gift to be able to play. And uh, so I think teaching has that built in. It is a mindset because we all know guys, that are great players, but can't teach, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that, that's a, it's a special perspective and, you know, no slight to anyone that, that can't teach. It's not meant for everyone. Um, but if, if you do do it, there's something built in to be a successful teacher. You have to be compassionate. You have to listen to other people. It's like being a good musician. you got to listen. you got to evolve. you got to be, you know, you can't be a big ego monster unless you're maybe, you know, miles or somebody, I don't know. But, right. you know, people let you do it. <laughs> There's a couple other questions I wanted to, to ask you. And um, this next one, I think, is, is fairly obvious. But I'd love to hear you kind of discuss it a little bit and get your perspective on it. Because, you know, in so many real ways, you're just a true groundbreaker in jazz guitar. Um, you know, getting into a community, as you call it, that is so chock-filled with men. You know, and especially in an era that you were coming up, it's not like today. It was you know, so misogynistic and there's still plenty of problems today, but I can imagine in the eighties and nineties, it was even worse. And, um, can you talk a little bit about like what you see today and how different it might be? And is it, is it really something that you can be encouraged by, or do you feel like maybe 
things aren't quite as evolved as we all hope they might be? That's a great question. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I think Cheryl Bailey, I, I listened a little bit to your interview with her um, recently, mm. and I agree with one of the things she pointed out because it's really made the difference for me too, and that is you have to have a sense of humor. I mean, yeah. I know that's a cliche, like, oh, come on, laugh it off, blah, 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 have a sense of humor, but reality is you can't take it all too seriously because it, it will just stop you, you know, in your tracks. If these, going back to distractions again, mm-hmm. the ego and being distracted, I think I don't have time for it to think about it really. And I would notice certainly that there was unfairness. I have female, very successful female guitar playing friends out there in the world, you know, who will, sh- will share stories. We'll talk about it. We'll commiserate, but you know, during the years I ran GIT, I remember somebody asking me, well, what do you do about the sexism? You know, does it bother you? And I literally, and this is not a lie. I said, well, what are you talking about? Cause I was too busy doing my job. It's like, I don't even notice because you know, that's the least important thing I could care less. And I know that sounds very callous at the end of the day. I really do care. I really want more female yeah. Uh, you know, uh, jazz guitarists and teachers and performers. Truly, I want more equality and opportunity. And uh, I think it has changed. But in the earlier days, um, I just couldn't be bothered by it. And no matter how much I didn't want to pay attention to it, I've been asked to be on many panels. I've moderated panels about it. I've, I, you know, get asked about it. And I don't mind talking about it. So it doesn't, it doesn't offend or bother me uh, at all. I'm happy to share my experience of, you know, feeling like I've kind of, uh, progressed through this era where it was more difficult, but, um, really sharing stories is important. And anyone that, that, um, breaks through, I think it's important to talk about it. So, you know, recently I, I, um, interviewed a bunch of, uh, female, uh, uh, department chairs for, um, an online guitar magazine, um, to highlight them. Because I think, you know, at this point in my life, I want to shine a spotlight on them. I want to acknowledge them. I want them to tell what they've endured and, and how they've succeeded because, it wouldn't matter, you know, if you were a female guitar player or some particular ethnicity or from some part of the world, or maybe you had a third arm, whatever it is, all of our stories are really interesting and we all have to overcome, you know, maybe you're dyslexic. I don't know. Everyone has, has something, a challenge they have to get past. If I can be an example or an inspiration for um, anyone, uh, I'm happy to be that, whether male, female, or otherwise. But anyway, that's a very long answer, um, Perry, and and um, I could go on for hours about it. But you know, really, I'm um, I'm I'm just seeing that there is some change, and that's what's really important because change doesn't happen quickly. It yeah. happens when it's ready to happen, and and it's you know good to ask the question. It's good you brought it up. It's good that we continue, just like being anti-racist or anything else. It's like, we can't just, you know, put it under the carpet. So I would love to see uh, my old adage come true, which is, you know, if we just had a hundred really great female jazz guitar players on the face of the earth, world peace would happen instantaneously. It's like, it's a mathematical formula. So I'm rooting for it. I think it's going to happen one of these days, maybe in my lifetime. I I believe that that is uh, a very, very accurate uh, educational guess here. I think that could totally happen. Uh, and 
Yeah, I, I just everything you're saying makes makes a lot of sense to me, and and it's about um, you know representing people in a way that they feel inspired and welcome. And you know, you being in a position where a younger woman can look up and say, "Oh, if she can do that, maybe I can do that." You know, and one of the things that Cheryl Bailey said that really sticks with me, which is why we're committed to, to continuing to have this conversation on our podcast because we're trying to learn we want our listeners to learn but she said you know we want the best people in this community and and if we're really going to shoot for the best people we got to have the door open to everybody and it kind of just means that you need to have examples for everybody to really gravitate towards and i think um it's it's just so important and you know speaking of great examples um we both share uh, this incredible relationship with Joe DiOrio. Uh, I was also very close to him at USC. And when you were talking about, um, you know, hanging with him after classes or going out and having lunch with them and things like that, this is all the stuff that I would do with him. Uh, and he's like one of the most inspiring teachers I've ever had in my life. And I think everyone that studies with him kind of you become a kindred spirit in a way. And it's like you have this sort of father or godfather of jazz guitar that it's like this constant source of inspiration. And so my last question is just, you know, because a lot of people don't know about Joe, Joe DiOrio. You know, it's still, he's still kind of like sometimes under the radar as a guitar player around the world. And so just talk to our listeners just a little bit about, you know, what he meant to you because I know it was like everything to me, you know. Um, you know, he really was all those things that you said to me, um, and more because even though I don't see him, you know, anymore face to face, he, you know, I think great teachers as well as great players, you know, they've become a part of us. And so, um, you know, I could kind of circle back to this question about being a female guitar player. Yeah. Joe certainly didn't think, oh, well, I'm not going to mentor her no. because she's, you know, no. she's a female player. I mean, it, the, you know, all these things you talked about, and I mentioned before, too, about Joe, it transcends, um, you know, definition. It's like, are you willing to um, kind of go down the road with him? You know, mm -hmm. are you a willing um, receiver and participant? Because I would see in classes when Joe would teach, sometimes he'd get really mad. Like I remember him yelling at a class, a jazz guitar class at, at GIT. He was teaching. He's like, "None of you deserve to learn this, you know. Forget it." And he just like stormed out. And I think, um, you know, if you don't have the commitment and you're not willing to walk the walk, he's not going to even take you on or, or take you seriously. So, believe it or not, probably it's more exceptional, you know, to have someone who's willing to walk the walk than it is the rule. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he recognized that in me. And, um, I, I think he really was, um, maybe my first real mentor in a way. It, he really believed in me and that did really make a difference. Cause I think we all have our doubts about our abilities or, you know, when right. you're, when you're sitting across from Joe or playing with Joe, it's like, you know, you kind of have moments of, of you doubt yourself or like, can I get it? Or how can I, you know what I mean? But, but he never had a feeling of, um, holding anyone down or back. It's just, he just was like, you were talking about having the doors open, the Cheryl Bailey comment yeah. about let's keep it, you know, he would hold the door open for anyone yeah. that would be willing to go there with him. And I think that's the sign of a great teacher. 
you know, I've seen that in, in other great teachers. I've had a lot of great teachers, but Joe being really my first mentor, it did really mean so much to me that he truly believed in me and, you know, found completely unique ways to communicate to me. Yeah. You know, that was like unique. I'm sure the, the language he used with you, Perry, the way yeah. he taught you would be completely different than, than how he was with me or John or anyone else, you yeah. know? So that's a whole nother ball of wax. It's like, it wasn't cookie cutter. Some teachers, you kind of know that mm-hmm. like, okay, mm-hmm. you, well, you've taught this lesson 30 times, you yes. know, you kind of feel like there's a stale right. sort of thing. But um, anyway, that, that's, that's kind of my experience. You know, I love that I can still call him up. You know, we, I mean, it kind of, it like, it really affects me, you know, it's mm-hmm. very, very personal. Like the conversations we have, I feel like not a year has gone by and we might as well just be at USC hanging out and, you know, gets a little on the spiritual side. He gets, yeah. Joe is very met- metaphysical and, you know, I can hang with him there. And so, um, you know, we would talk about everything in life. It was just all about life. You know, that yeah. was sort of, that was the lesson. It was like we were doing life um, with guitar added, you know, appetizer yeah. of guitar. <laughs> and I've held on to those lessons. They've served me well through lots of years. And, you know, we've, we've talked about them with a number of guitar players on the podcast. Uh, it's incredible to get your perspective and the experiences that you had with him. I will share for the listeners that we do have an episode with Joe DiOrio that's going to be coming out. It's a two-part episode. It's probably going to be coming out towards the end of our first season here. And yeah, we talk about him a lot because there aren't a lot of guitar teachers that have had this kind of similar effect on just about everybody that studied with him um, and a range of players, you know. And so it's something special to uh, recognize about him. And Beth, I'm just glad that we have this camaraderie between us uh, with that connection with him. Because I I literally talked to him a month ago. He's still doing well. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's great to connect with you, a fellow uh, Diorio student. Hey, well, well, how is this harmonica coming along? (laughs) How are those licks? That I did. The bird licks? So I'm going to have to ask him about that next time I call him up. I, I do love that we have podcasts and it doesn't have to be the 2003 NAM show where I guess I first <laughs> met John. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I'll yeah. ever see you at an NAM show again or anyone. I don't know if I'll ever go to an NAM show again, but I, I love that we have new ways to connect. And, um, you know, it's really, it, it's great. And you guys are all really great. You know, I'm having a good time here. So I appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you. Thank Beth, you. as uh, as we wrap up, can I play some of your, your rhythm changes? Sure. Thank you. 
Beth, you had a quote that I just wanted to, I think it's a good way to close it and just get your thoughts on it. Um, I don't remember where I saw this or heard this or read this, but your quote was that your boss is really your students rather than the administration. And if you just talk about that quote a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, I think it just keeps it lined up, you know, for me, like what the priorities are. It, 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 as long as I don't get dumped out of the canoe, you know, um, I, I'm going to go be able to sort of keep making progress and know who I work for. I mean, it's it made it really simple. And again, we were talking about distractions before. It keeps the distractions out because, man, I could get really uh, annoyed by, oh, this you know, department head or this director or this or that, or, you know, and I think, um, you have to keep your eye on the prize and then that just keeps it really simple for me. So, um, I, I think maybe it's a Joe Diorio lesson. I don't know. It's like cut away the fat, you know, keep it simple, keep it clear, stay on target. And, um, and, and so, uh, I am always, it's a gas. I'm always happy when I'm out in the world and I run into former students of mine, you know, and it's like, wow, you changed my life or this or that. I mean, it's really, really, a fantastic feeling. And then it's sometimes wrapped in being really embarrassed because it's like, do I know you? <laughs> Did I, I don't recognize you. What was your name? It's kind of, <laughs> it's terrible. I like to think, um, you know, I remember all the students. I know that I don't. Um, so to me, it's kind of a wonderful surprise because when they appear and they're like, they live in Shanghai or wherever it is. And then you know, I, I, it makes me, makes it really worthwhile. It's like it's all been worth it because I've done this for all of, you know, them, whatever it is I have done in my career. Um, and I wish after all the thousands that I could remember them all. But it's like it just keeps, you know, it's karma sort of. It keeps coming back to you. And so um, I'm hopeful that, you know, I can keep teaching. And yeah. I don't know what my next chapter will be, you know, after COVID, how that will shape up. I hope I can go back to gigging, you know, more because I've had a lot of time to shed. So I really feel like I want to play looking forward to that. Um, and, um, you know, continue to have a few good students here and there and see where it goes. But I feel like a lucky dog. I can't say that I, that I haven't enjoyed every single moment of it. It's been, it's been a great thing so far. So good. Well, you know, please continue doing what you're doing and leading the way. And, you know, I mean, being a beyond crucial part of MI and I mean, you're, you're guiding the future generations into music. So we need you more than ever. All right. Thank awesome. you. Thanks for the encouragement. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.